Am I on? Check one, two. Test, test, test. You sure? I'm on? Doesn't sound on. Check one, two. Oh, there we go. All right. I was going to pull a Keith and just shout really loudly for everybody. <laughs> just give me one second here to get set up. All right. Again, it's always an honor and a privilege to get to share God's word uh, with you as, as my church family as my friends and my literal family, as they're here as well. Um, but before I start my sermon, I just want to say uh, thank you. A few weeks ago, uh, Mark Harrigan presented us with just a, a love gift um, on behalf of the congregation. And, and me and Stephanie just want to say thank you for that. We, we didn't expect it at all. We were very taken back and surprised when we were asked to like, step forward. I was like, oh, am I getting fired? What's, what's going on here? Uh, so we just want to say thank you so much for, for showing us love in, in that way. Uh, we appreciate it. We love serving here at New Village. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's where God has us called right now, and, and where God calls you, he equips you, and you find joy where God brings you. Um, I just want to say it's been a while since I've been up here actually preaching. Uh, so just thank you as a church for being patient with us as the elder board as we've been navigating through these, these weird times in the midst of a pandemic in the midst of a pastorless church. Uh, we just continue to ask for patience uh, furthermore as we continue through this, this, uh, these weird times. Um, but also, I just want to be real and honest. And uh, I, I took some time away from the pulpit, away from preaching. And that's why, you know, all of September and October, we had some guest preachers come in. And again, thank you for entrusting us, the board, with having these, these strangers come in and preach the word to you. Um, but for me personally, I, I've really just been struggling spiritually, and, and I was debating on whether or not to start off, you know, preaching this way, and I think it's, it's good to just show you that just because I'm behind this pulpit on this stage, it doesn't mean I'm literally above you, and I'm, I'm sitting more superior spiritually or morally. Uh, I am a sinner just like all of us here in need of God's grace. I'm a sinner who fails constantly in my walk with Jesus in my relationships around me. Uh, so again, I just needed some time spiritually to just, I, I think, really pursue Jesus and make him the first love in my life again. Uh, so that's the reason why I took some time away from, from the pit. And even we, me and Stephanie went up to Lake George in October uh, just as a little bit of sabbatical. Uh, we, we, we use this vacation as a sabbatical to really unplug and it just experience intimacy with God, um, to reconnect with God and, and to read his word together. Um, so God is working in me, and I feel like I am at a, at a good place spiritually to preach his word uh, to you this morning. And what I'm going to be preaching on this morning, it's been on my heart for the past couple of weeks, and we'll get there in a minute, but I want to start off by just stating a phrase. And you can either agree or disagree with it. There are some questions that you can ask nowadays, especially like in 2020, that have the power to unite or divide people. See, depending on the answer you receive to these questions, you can easily offend people and make enemies for life, or you can find friends for life, depending on the answer you get. And I'll give you some examples. The first one is this. How do you like your steak? 
right? There are some die-hard steak lovers in the world. People will rant and rave, you got to have medium. No, you need medium rare. No, you need medium well. Then you have people say, well, if you get it medium well, you might as well just eat a burger because it's not really steak, right? So people are passionate about their steaks. Uh, I'll give you another example. Is crispy bacon better or is undercooked bacon better? All right, these, these are powerful questions here. Um, if you asked me this question when I was younger, I would have said, yeah, give me the, under, the undercooked bacon. But now I go to the bagel store and I'm like, all right, get me a bacon, egg, and cheese. Burn the bacon for me. And one time they actually put it in the microwave and they actually burnt it and it smoked up the whole place. So I got my sandwich and I was like, okay, bye. <laughs> got to go. Look at the time. Um, and I was like, I don't know if I should go back to the store. They all look like they want to kill me. Um, so again, or this, are you a dog person or are you a cat person? And I know there's some people who are in the middle of that, but these are very polarized questions. You know, people either love dogs and hate cats or they love cats and hate dogs and they're passionate about it. And those are just some silly examples, but to get into more serious questions, I have with me a little bit of, a, an, of an object lesson, right? This, can you wear masks, right? That question, it just seems like this is, is a dividing question. When you're asked to wear this, you'll have people that say, oh, if you wear the mask, you're a sheep. Or if you don't wear a mask, you don't care about others and you want to kill them, right? It's, it's a very divisive question. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong or what the right answer is, or even this question, who did you vote for? Right, maybe some of you are starting to cringe. You're like, oh, please don't go down this route. Please stop it. I'm not going any further. Who did you vote for, right? Very divisive or uniting question based on who you're talking to and what they say. And now even getting to the spiritual realm, right, because we're in church, we're reading God's word. As a Christians, the spiritual realm, do you prefer hymns or contemporary music? Who is Jesus? How should we baptize? Do we sprinkle water over a baby? Or do we fully immerse somebody? Does it matter how old they are, how young they are? Are you supposed to do it in, in a lake, in a river, at a church, in a bathtub, in a pool? Or this, how do you get to heaven? How do you get eternal life? And the sad truth is, these spiritual questions, the one I just said, have caused churches to split as ridiculous and as just silly as that sounds, but like a sad type of silly, they've caused churches to split throughout history and have caused divisions amongst Christians, amongst God's uh, or Christ's body. So today I want to spend some time just reading through Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I just want to say, I've been going through the book of Ephesians with the youth group since September. We've been taking it section by section and really looking at the context and what Paul is commanding the, the church members of Ephesus to act and, and what they should believe in. Um, so again, just some context with, with this book. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to the people in, in Ephesus, to the Ephesians, while he's in prison in Rome. So the church is already planted, it's started. Paul goes back to Rome, he gets arrested, he's in prison, and he's awaiting trial. He wrote this letter to them about 60, 62 AD, which is about 30 years after Jesus Christ died on the cross, and he rose from the dead and ascended up to heaven. Now the city Ephesus, the city itself, was pretty advanced. I always get into this habit of when I'm reading even the New Testament, I'm like, oh yeah, they probably had like little mud huts and like their roads were probably just dirt and they were just not, re not really tech savvy with, with their builds and things like that. But Ephesus was pretty advanced. It was said that there's a 25,000 person amphitheater built where 25,000 people can go sit and be entertained watching a play. 
And I just Googled the capacity of Madison Square Garden. Does anybody know what it is? 20,789 people. So this amphitheater back then seated 25,000, a little bit more. They also had something called the Temple of Artemis. And this was one of the ancient seven wonders of the, of one of the ancient wonders of, of the world back then. And it was a temple that was built for a goddess, Artemis. And people would go there and worship her and worship her as their god. It was also the capital of Western Turkey. So Ephesus wasn't just this like shrinky-dink little city or town where it's like, oh, look at there's like, ooh, look at that mud hut there. No, it was this extreme culturally advanced civilization, the city. It was also very spiritual. So if you were to go there, it was the epicenter for Greek and Roman worship. All the Greek and Roman gods were worshipped there. It was full of mysticism and idolatry. And people would actually worship Jesus, but they'd worship angels and other spirits and spiritual beings, and some would worship false gods and gods while they worship Jesus. So even the church itself was plagued with these false teachers who didn't really understand the scriptures. And Ephesians itself, this, this six-chapter letter that Paul wrote, the first three chapters of Ephesians all talks about proper doctrine. Paul writes them... Uh, writes to the people there what you should know about God, who God is, what is the gospel. And then when you get to the last three chapters of Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, and today we're at chapter 4, Paul transitions to now what is the duty of Christians. So he starts with doctrine, you know, what you should know, who God is, what's the gospel, to now duty, which is what do I do as a Christian? How do I act in light of my doctrine that I know? So we're in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read the first 16 verses, and then I'll just kind of tell you where I'm navigating with this this morning. So let's read these verses together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me just pray real quick. God, once again, we just thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the privilege of being able to share your word uh, with, with my church family. God, I just pray that you use me as a vessel this morning, that you allow me 
um, to just let the Spirit lead me as we go through uh, Paul's letter this morning. I pray, Lord, that we are affected by what we read, that we're affected by your word, and that we're reminded of the love that you have for us. So we thank you and we praise you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I was reading and as I was going over this, uh, Paul really has two main ideas in these 16 verses. So if you have your little notes, your little paper here with your notes, letter A, he talks about the unity of believers, the unity of believers. And that's the first six verses. And then all the, all the way at the bottom, letter B, he says the uniqueness of believers, the uniqueness of believers, which are the last uh, couple of verses in this section. So as I was going through this, I really wanted to touch on both the unity and the uniqueness, and I realized that was about an hour and a half long sermon, uh, or maybe an hour and 15 minutes. So I was like, you know what, let me cut this in half, let me take my time. So this morning we're just going to focus on the first six verses that, which talk about the unity amongst believers. And when I say the word believers, I'm meaning fellow Christians, other Christ followers. You could also say other church members, believers. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. Paul says this. He starts off by saying, I therefore, I therefore. And if you know anything about the English, the English language, which I really don't, so I looked it up, therefore it's a transitional word. And what it tells you, it tells you to go back. And really Paul starts off this chapter by saying this. In light of everything that I've just said, do this. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Right? So now the question becomes, well, well what is this? What, what is he talking about in light of this? What, what is he talking about? What did he just say? And he's, he's talking to the first three chapters of Ephesians. And because we're jumping into the middle, let's just quickly go back and, and look at some of these main points that Paul writes. And each one of these little subpoints can be a sermon in and of itself. They're that just theologically deep. In chapter 1, he tells us this. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Think of how crazy that is. Before anything existed, one, God existed, but he chose us in Christ before he made the earth. He also says he predestined us for adoption as his children. He says in Christ there is redemption, there's forgiveness of our sins. And if you weren't here last week or if you zoned out when Steve Massaro was preaching, I encourage you to listen to it. It was a great reminder of, of what Jesus did for us and a great reminder of what the gospel is. We also learn in chapter 1, Paul says that in Christ we've obtained an eternal inheritance, that we were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, that Christ is raised high above all rule and authority, dominion in the heavenly places, and he's seated at the right hand of God, the, the seat of highest glory and honor. Right? And that's just chapter 1. These are the highlights of it. Chapter 2 talks about how we were dead in our sins. We were enemies at God, of God. We were children of wrath, children of disobedience. And then it says this, but God being rich in mercy, he saved us. By grace you have been saved through faith. I think most of us have either memorized or heard that verse before. He also says this, that both Jew and Gentile are united by Christ's death and his resurrection. And if you were a Jewish person reading this letter, your, your jaw would be at the ground. You'd be like, whoa, wait a minute. God is, Jesus died for the Gentiles? I thought he was just for us, the, the Jews. So he's bringing up these, these deep theological things. He says also, all who believe in Christ are reconciled or made right before God, and they become citizens of heaven. And in chapter 3, he reveals this mystery, the mystery of the gospel that's been hidden 
And the mystery is that now Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are fellow heirs. They're members of the same body, partakers of the same promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel, through the cross. So what Paul says, again, in verse 1 here of chapter 4, he says, in light of all that, in light of all that doctrine and theology that I taught you and, and I told you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, number one on your, on your notes, walk in a manner worthy. And depending on your Bible and the translation, it might even say this, live a life worthy. So Paul's telling them that as they live their life, as they're going out daily, conduct yourself or act in a way, live in such a way that matches your position in Christ. And in really simpler words, it says this, live your lives in such a way that honors and brings glory to God. Walk in a manner worthy. And this is not a phrase that's just unique to the book of Ephesians. Paul used this phrase multiple times. If you just want to jot down these, these places of scripture, I'm going to read them real quick. It's one verse, uh, or there's three, but they're all one verse. Colossians 1.10, he says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Philippians 1.27, Only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So again, Paul is bringing up a big deal, something important here. And what he's saying is doctrine is important, but then there's also the, in light of everything that he told them, he says, let that doctrine now dictate how you live. Live in a way that, in what you believe, live out what you believe. And as Christians, I think we can easily get caught up in doctrines. You can debate people for hours, you can get to arguments. And I'm not saying that knowing a lot of doctrine and knowing good doctrine is bad, but if you say this, if you say, you got to love your neighbor, you got to love your neighbor, you got to love your neighbor, Je Jesus says, love your neighbor, but then the chance comes for you to actually love your neighbor and you don't do it, that's a problem. And James, in his book, says this, faith without works is dead, right? So what we know about God, our doctrine, should dictate or it should really just affect the way that we live daily, the way we talk to people, the way we interact with others, so Paul's instructing the Ephesians to live in a way that will be worthy to the calling that Christ has called them to. And I love it. He doesn't just leave them there and say, okay, good luck, have fun. Like, I, I pray that you can do it right. He actually tells them how to do it in verse 2. So in verse 2, he says this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Do we have any Star Wars fans out in the sanctuary today. You can raise your hand nice and proud. Don't be ashamed. You can raise. I'll raise mine. Okay? When I read this, I thought of a quote that Yoda said. I'm not going to say it like him, but I'll read it. <laughs> he says, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And hate leads to suffering. Almost. Hate leads to suffering. So what Yoda does is he's sort of saying, you know, each one of those words builds into the next word. So fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And when Paul lists these words, humility, gentleness, patience, love, they all build into each other. So practicing humility 
will then lead to gentleness. Practicing gentleness will then lead to patience. And practicing all three of those, you'll be able to bear with one another in love. So I think it's important just to quickly spend a few minutes on each word to just slowly go over it. Uh, So the first word, humility. And I know I just contradicted myself. I said, let's go quickly, but let's take our time. We'll find a healthy medium here. Humility. The root of, uh, of this word means low lying or, or not rising far off the ground. And if you put that into spiritual thinking or even emotional thinking, it can mean this, to have a deep sense of your own moral littleness or to be lowly in spirit, which we read in the Bible over and over again. And sometimes even looking at a word's opposite can help us with the definition of that word. So the opposite of humility is prideful and arrogance. Pride and arrogance. And I don't know if you've ever been around a prideful or arrogant person. I never look forward to talking to them. Right? <laughs> I'm always like, oh, great, I got to talk to this person, and all they like to do is listen to themselves talk. They always have to be right. Uh, they, they say they know everything, and they ask me how I'm doing, but they really don't care. All they care about is themselves. Right? Arrogant and prideful people are not fun to be around. A Christian who is humble... They know that Christ is in charge. They submit to him fully and they allow him to lead their lives. When you're lowly in spirit, when you know how little morally you are, it really raises up how big and how good Christ is. We're aware of our own moral littleness. We are humble. The next word, gentleness. Now don't get confused by someone who's a pushover or someone who's, who's very soft-spoken, like, like maybe there's like a, a conflict going on there and they're just like, oh, like, oh, oh, that's, that's scary. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go over there. No, no, no. But another way or another word to describe gentleness in the Bible is meek, being meek, meekness. And a way to describe that is exercising power under authority or exercising strength under control. And think about it this way. When you see a kid going to pet a puppy, 99.9% of the time the parents say what? Be gentle. I, I even heard it yesterday. Be gentle. Don't, don't hurt the puppy. Be gentle. Right? Because that kid has the power to harm the puppy. Kids are bigger than puppies. They can really harm them. But instead, the kid, if they listen to their parents, they exercise restraint. They exercise gentleness to not harm the puppy. I know that was sort of a silly example, but think even about Jesus. Jesus, who's fully God, fully man, He chose not to call down an army of angels to save him on the cross. He could have. Jesus could have easily gotten off the cross and not died. He had the authority and strength to do it, yet he exercised gentleness. He chose not to because it wasn't part of the Father's plan. So a Christian who is gentle, think of this, has self-control. Has self-control. They know the right time to be firm, but also the right time to listen. They're led by the Spirit, not their emotions. The next word we see here is patience. And it's a Greek word that literally means to be long-tempered or to endure. And if you think back to the Old Testament writers, they always say this about God, that God is patient. He's what? Slow to anger. They actually define patience with the next attribute of God. He's slow to anger. He's long-tempered. Think of as patience as remaining calm under pressure remaining calm under pressure so again a christian who's patient they show restraint when another wrongs or upsets them 
they don't lash out out of emotions or lash out immediately, but rather they, they show restraint. These three words, humility, gentleness, patience, it all leads to the final phrase that Paul says here in verse 2, bearing with one another in love. And the love that's mentioned here, it's a love that's continuous, a love that's unconditional. It's not a love that you say, okay, I'm going to put up with you until you either die or move away, or I die and move away, or, or you sit on this side of the sanctuary and I'll sit on this side, and we just won't talk to each other at church, right? It's not that type of love. It's a love that is continuous. It's a love that, again, you're bearing that love. A Christian who's fueled by humility, gentleness, and patience is able to love another believer, another Christian this way. So number one, we're told uh, within the midst of unity of believers to walk in a manner worthy, show humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Number two, the next idea that Paul brings up is that believers should be eager to maintain unity. Verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And when I think of the word eager, I don't think of someone who's just sort of sitting back, who's just really not showing any emotions. Like, eager is actively looking forward to or you're excited to, right? So as Christians, we should be eager to maintain unity. We should be striving to do that, working to do that. And looking back to last week's sermon, the text of John chapter 17, it gives us a peek at Jesus' prayer to God before his crucifixion. And Jesus prays this. In verse 21, John 17, 21, Jesus says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you and they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he's praying for unity amongst his disciples, amongst his believers. And John MacArthur in a commentary for this verse, I I love the way he puts it, so I'm just going to read it, what what he wrote. He says, this is still not a, or this is not still a wish of Jesus's. But it became a reality when the Spirit came. It's not an experiential unity, but a unity of common eternal life shared by all who believe the truth, and it results in one body of Christ, all sharing his life. So again, because of the Spirit, uh, this is not just a wish that Jesus is still praying for us. We've been united in the Spirit. And over and over again, in the New Testament, in all these letters to churches, you're going to read about dangers of division. Division in churches is a big deal if you're reading through the New Testament letters. Just a few, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there will be no divisions among you, but you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught avoid them for such persons do not serve our lord christ but their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive and the last one titus 3 9 to 11 but avoid foolish controversies genealogies dissensions and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless as for a person who stirs up the vision after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Right, so there's no way you can read these letters and be like, okay, I, I think it's okay to have a church that's divided. I think, you know, division is okay. No, Paul actually, the language that, that's used in these verses by Paul and other authors, it says, avoid people or, or stop talking to them. 
It's sinful. There, it says a person is warped and sinful. Again, Satan loves to divide. Satan loves to divide. He loves to separate. Just think of the very first interaction we have of him in Genesis. Satan's first conspiracy was what? To divide Adam and Eve from God and from each other, to come between relationships. He wants to drive wedges between relationships. And Satan will continue to attack local churches and stir up divisions amongst believers because that's what he's been doing since the first churches were established. It's all throughout the New Testament letters. Avoid division. Be united. Christ stands for unity. Paul stands for unity. The Spirit unites us where Satan says, no, 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 I've got to divide. I've got to divide. I've got to separate. So unity amongst believers, that's how we combat Satan within the local church. We all have the same spirit within us who unites us as children of God. God just doesn't go, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of my spirit right here, and you, I'm going to give you a little other bit of my spirit here, and you know, you back there, I'll give you a spirit there, right? It's the same spirit that lives in me, if you are a Christian, will live in you. And that's what's really cool if you go to another church, right? Even if you go to another country, what unites us, and we can call other Christians brothers and sisters in the Lord because of that spirit. We have the same spirit living in all of us. It's not just a little piece of a spirit here and a little piece of a spirit here. So again, because we belong to the same kingdom, because we have the same spirit, we should be striving, eager to live at peace with each other. And I just thought of this, a kingdom that's united is a peaceful kingdom, right? So ignore all the outside, you know, wars and violence, but within itself, a kingdom that's united, there will be peace. There'll be no civil wars. There won't be any civil uh, violence. And as believers, we should be eager to maintain unity amongst ourselves, amongst believers, amongst the church, because one, that's what Christ desires, but two, because that's what Satan desires. To, he desires, or that's the opposite, he de- he desires to separate us, to tear down local churches by putting wedges in relationships. So number two, Christians should maintain, eagerly maintain unity. And then we move to, to number three, the importance of one. The importance of one. So he continues in these first six verses and he keeps, again, repeating the same word, one. In verses 4 to 6, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. So Paul uses this word one seven times. And as you read that, that's that's important. It, It should stand out. You should be like, oh, one, 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 one. I think he's trying to say something here. He starts this list. He lists off things that unite us as believers. So let's just look at each one. One body. He's talking about the global church, capital C church, not not local churches like lowercase c. You have New Village Church and you have Three Village Church and all these different churches. But the global church, which is the body of Christ, which is made up of every believer around the world all throughout time. He then transitions to one spirit. And it's Christ's promised spirit who helps us, who guides us, who comforts us, who regenerates our hearts when we ask for repentance. Again, it's not one little piece of God's spirit living in each one of us. It's the Holy Spirit dwelling in each one of our hearts fully. We have one hope. 
and it's the hope and the promise of eternal inheritance. Spending eternity in heaven with Jesus, with our Savior. We have one Lord, and I hope we all know who the Lord is, Jesus. We have one faith, and it's the faith that the gospel reveals in, in, in the New Testament. It's the faith that Paul says in the first three chapters of Ephesians. What we believe as Christians, our doctrine. There's one baptism, and I did a, a little bit of commentary search on this, and it most likely just refers to, to water baptism that follows after salvation. So it's not getting into a specific of how to, but rather water baptism. And it's a believer's public confession of their faith that follows after repentance and salvation. And then he says there's one God. It's God the Father who never changes, who remains the same yesterday and today. Again, something cool with this list, Paul brings up the Trinity. Within it, you see the Holy Spirit. You see Jesus, our Lord and Savior. You see God, the Father. Even in chapter 1 of Ephesians, when he's setting up the right doctrine for the, for the church, for the people, he, he, he touches on God the Father, Jesus and the sacrifice he made on the cross, and then the promise of the Holy Spirit who marks us, who seals us with the promise. And as I was planning the music, I don't know if you picked up on it, but if you, have, if you have the lyrics in front of you, the very first song we sang, it's the Trinity, God our Father, our Lord Jesus, Spirit Holy. Again, looking at this list, all these ones, all who belong to Christ's kingdom, all of us as believers, we're united by these things. And if you're looking back at your notes, letter B, the uniqueness of believers, as I mentioned before, I didn't have enough time to really touch on both of these points because I wanted to make sure we, we slowly went through each one of them. But Paul's saying this, one, we're all united, right? That's, that's as Christians, we all belong to Christ. He's, he's our Savior, he's our Lord. But on the other hand, there's a, a certain uniqueness among believers. And the next time I preach, I'd, I'd love to touch on that. So think of this as like my part one of part two. And as I come to an end, I just want to focus real quick on, on hope. He even says one hope. And we, we lit the first candle, the, the Advent, which is the theme of hope. And really, at the start of the pandemic, I really felt hopeless. And I was really, this was back in, I think, April and May. I was just like, when is this going to end? There's no end in sight. You know, is life ever going to get back to normal? I, I was really feeling this, this sadness or sorrow and I was looking back, and it was because I was hoping in all the wrong things. I was really hoping in, I don't know, technology and a vaccine and government and hospitals. Instead of putting my hope in Christ, my spiritual health was declining because I was getting further and further away from God's word and putting my hope on other things. And as Christians, our, our hope is in the cross, which is you know, right there behind me. It's on the cross. It's what Christ did for us. And the hope is that at one day when we die, we get to spend an eternity in glory with our Savior, with our God, and worship him day and night. Again, as, as Christians, our hope is in Christ. It's not in ourselves. It's not in others. It's not in family. You know, you're you're going to fail yourself. People are going to fail you. Your heroes are going to fail you. But Jesus never fails. Let's pray. Jesus, we just praise you this morning.
Jesus, we thank you so much for what you've done for us, that you died on the cross to save us, to save us from our sins, that you took the wrath that we deserve, the punishment that we deserve. Jesus, I just pray that, that what we read this morning, the idea of unity amongst believers, I just pray that we as a church, as New Village Church, we make this our prayer. We strive for unity. So God, I just pray right now, if there's anyone in this congregation who has a problem with another one here, I pray that you put it on their heart to give them boldness, give them humility, gentleness, patience, and love to go to the other believer and make peace. I pray that we as a church stay unified, that we, we know what the enemy we know what the enemy's plan is, that he wants to divide, that he wants to drive wedges in our relationships. So Jesus, I pray that you give us boldness, you give us the love to keep the peace. Jesus, I just continue to pray for our church as we're navigating through this time. I pray for just unity amongst the elders, unity in our body, and that we'll remember that we're all worshiping you, our risen Savior. So Jesus, thank you so much. We love you, and in your name we pray. Amen.